is the prayer we pray because Jesus instructs us. He tells us, say these words. This is the prayer we pray because Jesus instructs us. It's the prayer we pray because we must, because our life as God's people depend on these words. We often talk about how our life as God's people depends upon the Word of God, and that's true. How much more true is it then that these words that Jesus gives us to pray together, you and I together, who seek God and to follow in the steps of Jesus, how much more so are these, prayer, are these words, words that we pray because we must, because our life depends upon it, because we are being formed into the image of the God who created us and the Jesus that we profess to follow as Lord, because these words are shaping our hearts, they're shaping our minds, they're shaping our affections, the things we care about most that we, our, our attention is focused on. So we, so we pray these words and we do not take them for granted. They are a gift. And this morning I want to invite us to take them up again. We've heard them sung uh, as we assembled and gathered so beautifully. Thank you for the gift of these words in song. We've seen them represented in this video that leads us into this time of reflection and study on God's Word, and we pray them together. It's a prayer to be prayed, and so we pray this prayer together. And this morning, I want to invite us to do so in this particular way. We are going to say together each phrase of the prayer, and between each phrase of the prayer, we're going to stop for a moment. And in the silence that God gives us, we're going to allow those words to penetrate our hearts and our minds. And so between each phrase, there will be a moment for us to reflect together. And then I will invite us, I will say, as the Lord Jesus has taught us to pray, we say, and then we'll say the next phrase together. Okay, everybody got the instructions for prayer today? Very good. Let's now open our hearts and join our voices together. As the Lord Jesus has taught us to pray, we say together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. As the Lord Jesus has taught us to pray, we say, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. As the Lord Jesus has taught us to pray, we say, Give us today our daily bread. As the Lord Jesus has taught us to pray, we say, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. As the Lord Jesus has taught us to pray, we say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As the Lord Jesus has taught us to pray, we say, for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours 
forever. Amen. Oh God, draw near to us in these moments where together our voices utter this prayer and in the space of silence, you are near to us, present to us. We pray, uh, Lord God, that as we hold this prayer as um, priceless, a precious gift and treasure that you would shape our hearts and our minds that we might know you and go in your way, that our allegiance might be to you and to you alone. That we might be dependent upon you and know you as the God of provision in every moment that you provide for us. And that your mercy might extend to all of us and cover us so that we might live as people of grace and mercy, a house of mercy we pray, Father, today that you would deliver us from evil. Lead us not to temptation. In the name of Jesus, amen. Maybe most succinctly, we might say in this next moment that the prayer invites us to inhabit. Simply, deliver us. Deliver us which is really, really important. Have you ever had the sense that something is not quite right? You know, um, some of you, maybe you have the gift of intuition or this gift of, uh, you know, sort of intuiting that something's not quite right. Something's a bit out of place. Maybe some of you have that gift. Have you ever walked into a place that's familiar that you know, maybe it's even this space, and you look up and you notice, oh, something's a little bit different. They've rearranged the furniture. I remember, uh, what, a few weeks ago, I walked in, and this platform was not here. Did you, did you take notice? Something's not right. Somebody changed the furniture, or maybe it's the way things are arranged up here. In my house, when I was growing up as a kid, my mom loved to change the furniture around all the time. I don't know why. She just liked to experiment with new arrangements of things, I guess. And I would walk in and go, whoa, something's missing here. Maybe you've been to visit someplace familiar and they've changed the decoration, or maybe they painted the walls, and your first instinct is not they painted the walls, but wait a minute, something's a little bit different here. Maybe it's like that. Maybe it's something fills out of line, out of rhythm in your person, right? Could be in your heart or your mind or even in your body. Maybe it's something you ate. Anyone? Something's not quite right here. Or maybe it's just, uh, and, and I'm going to not ask for confession here. You stop and you think to yourself, I'm just getting old. <laughs> something doesn't feel quite right. I've been trying to work out, you know, in the new year you do that, and I'm still, I'm still it's February, and I'm still working at it, um, but I've discovered that my body doesn't take to that in the same way it used to, say, 20 years ago, right? I've got this pain in my shoulder I'm trying to work out right now. Something is not quite right. We sense it. Something is not quite right. Have you ever had that sense that something's not quite right, either around you, or maybe it's in your person, 
We're not talking about the something's not quite right today that would prompt this part of the prayer as being something that is a little rearrangement of the furniture or perhaps a visit to the chiropractor might fix. It's the feeling that something is fundamentally not right. Fundamentally wrong. If the Apostle Paul were here this morning, he might put it like this. We heard in the words that were read for us just moments ago from Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning right up to the present time. It's been groaning. It's in travail. Something is not quite right. The whole project is out of alignment. It's as if the creation groans, Paul says. I wonder if we listen carefully, if we stop, perhaps in that moment of silence between the phrases of this prayer, if we might hear the groaning of the creation. Some of us, I suspect, maybe it's that intuition thing. It's a spiritual intuition. It's a spiritual gift in which one is attuned to the world and to the, the, the spiritual realms of things in which you hear the groaning of the whole creation. Some of you can hear it maybe because you have that gift or some of you can hear it because you know it. It is so close to you and so close to your experience and the journey that you're on that the groaning of the creation is your own groaning. Your own sense that something is not right. Several years ago, I went to visit my grandfather as he was struggling with cancer toward the last days of his life. He was um, in the care of my mother. He was living with her. And I lived in another city not too far away. And she told me that it would be good if you could come for a visit. And my life was busy. You know how we get my kids were young at that age, and my job was full, and it's hard to find time to break away, but you just kind of knew in that moment, it's important to go. So I found the space, and I drove to my mother's house, and my father was being cared for in uh, the spare bedroom, which was upstairs, and so I walked up the stairs into the room where my grandfather was. He was lying in the bed where uh, he was pretty much confined at that point. Um, and he looked up at me, and he smiled, and I knelt down by the side of the bed, got very close to him, and I took his hand in mine, and we spoke. The kind of words that um, I am his firstborn grandchild, that we might share together, the things we have in common, just reflecting on life, and it wasn't a lengthy conversation, but it was long enough for my grandfather to talk about the music my grandfather grew up playing the piano for a Texas swing band back in the day called Jesse James and the Canadian Aces. Jesse James, Canadian Aces. I asked him one time, I said, what's the Canadian Aces? And he said, oh, some of you know, does any of you know? Canadian, there was a brand of beer called Canadian Ace brand beer. So he played in a swing band, Texas swing band, Jesse James and the Canadian basses, you, uh, uh, Aces. You can find a song on the Blue Bonnet record label 
out of Austin, Texas, back in the day, Blue Bonnet Records, uh, by Jesse James and the Canadian Aces called Billy's Tune. My grandfather's name was Billy. And it's Billy's Tune. I have a recording of that. And he said to me in that moment, he said to me, I'm so glad you've taken up the music because I too can play the piano, learn to play the piano. And he says, um, but you're playing for a different reason. Your music's different. We shared that moment. It wasn't lengthy, but it was a sacred moment, a holy moment. And then he turned over on his side, his back away from me, and he curled up a bit. And he began to work his way through the pain. Something inside me in that moment groaned with his groaning. The phone rang one night. It was a friend I hadn't heard from in a little while. And he told me his predicament. The situation that he found himself in and essentially um, how he felt himself broken, his relationships broken, that this thing had taken hold of him and his life, and he just reached out and needed to talk. And as I listened to him express the pain of his predicament, you know, when something has seized a hold of your life and you feel like you're no longer in control of it, those impulses and addictions that kind of take over us and it begins to spread out and impact everybody around you and your life is so shattered you're not sure you can put it back together and through tears he wept and he told me about what he was experiencing and I'm telling you in that moment as I listened even across the phone something deep within me groaned as I heard the deep groanings of his experience There are these moments that come to us, and I would guess that if, in we, if, if we were in a more intimate setting, or perhaps we had some space more, individual, more individually, in sort of not in a big room with a lot of people, and we could sit and share with each other, you might be able to tell the stories of your own deep groaning. Again, something is not right. And wouldn't you say it's true that though that comes to each of us individually in different ways at different points in our lives, I would wager to say it comes to all of us, right? No one's going to escape the deep groaning of, of, of this sense that something's not right either within us or around us. Something's not right. It comes to us each in different forms, in different ways, at different times. There are these moments when something happens in our collective awareness of it so that we feel that groaning in common in the same moment. Do you know what I'm talking about? So, for example, I could give any number. I could spend the rest of the sermon giving examples of this, but something like someone puts a bomb at the federal building in Oklahoma City. Remember this? Where people go to work and drop their children off for care on the first floor. And the next thing you know, the whole thing's in rubble. And we see that 
And something within us all collectively in the same moment groans. This is not right. This is not right. Someone flies a plane into buildings and the buildings collapse. And all of us together in the same moment, collectively, universally, all of us who witnessed this groan. This is not right. Someone walks into an elementary school with a weapon and takes the life of children. Can you hear the creation groan? There are 7.9 billion people on this planet. That's a lot of people. And the, the near majority of those people can't find clean drinking water? If you know that, surely something within you groans. This is not right. Or you've seen the pictures of children malnourished and dying because the most basic fundamental elements to sustain life are not available to them. If you see that and you know that, surely something within you groans, something within us all collectively groans. This is not right. So the day and age when we thought we could isolate ourselves from it, set our lives up all nice and neat, insulate ourselves from it, is long past. It is our common experience and, and surely for those of us who are people of faith, who care about God's desire for the world, are attuned by God's Spirit to a deep groaning. What do you call that? How do you name it? How do you identify it? If not some deep-seated, here's the word, evil. Fracturing the creation, the life, the togetherness, the peace that God has always desired and intended. God did not call this creation into existence and, and created one's persons to inhabit this creation to bear God's own image in the world so that it might be fractured and laced with pain. It is not what God desires. The peace that God has always pursued in us, disrupted by, what should we call it? How do we name it? If not, evil. This moment in the prayer should bring to us a more desperate tone. Lead us. Deliver us. Because this part of the prayer comes from something deep within us and deep within the whole creation that groans. We're talking about evil. Evil that lurks around us in the darkness, that exists in the darkness, and sometimes prowls about in broad daylight. Sometimes the evil is around us. We've talked about that a little bit, lurking about, descending upon us, wreaking havoc on the whole created order, throwing life and sensibilities into chaos. Evil surrounds us. And, and there are moments when you look around, everywhere you turn, it seems evil manifests itself. You're like, can I just get a break from all of this? 
Evil is around us. And so we pray, deliver us. Deliver us from the evil. And sometimes the evil is not only around us, but the evil is within us. It comes from some place within us. It takes residence within us. It roots its way into our broken humanity. And so we pray, lead us not into temptation around us and within us. You know, the story of Scripture personifies evil almost from the beginning. It shows up on the scene abruptly. The end of Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve, it says, were naked and naked and felt no shame. And then in the next phrase, now the serpent was more crafty than any other. You probably don't notice the abruptness of it because it's at the end of chapter 2 and then someone has divided it so that there's chapter 3 and you flip the page and it seems like, well, that's nice. And then, oh, over here's a new thing. But really, it's the continuity of the story to create the abruptness between, look, this good creation and the created ones were good and whole and there was no shame. And then, boom, bam, right there. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other. I guess the most common reading of that is that evil is personified in the form of the serpent. And that image carries through from that point forward in Genesis in the creation story all the way through. It carries through Scripture. It holds that kind of representation. Evil as represented as the serpent acting upon us. Adam and Eve, there they are, tending the good garden. When evil represents itself comes in dialogue with Adam and Eve, acts upon them, right? Now, let me just underscore here where I'm going with this. Evil as something external to us, acting upon us, personified in the serpent. Yep, with me? Okay. But it's also possible to read it another way. And I want to take just a moment to walk you through this in this part of the teaching. Look, in the beginning, God's good creation, right, issues from God's own image, his desire, as I mentioned earlier. God's togetherness, the peace, the fullness, the completeness of God is manifest in the created order. That's why the story invites us to imagine it as a garden where things flourish, And the created ones are created for relationship with each other in God's good creation. They too are image bearers of God's life. They are created for oneness and togetherness. They were created for oneness and togetherness with with one another, but they were also created for oneness and togetherness with God. God creates because God desires a world that reflects his image and the goodness, the flourishing, the extension of God's goodness in the created order and created ones in all things for relationship, for oneness. God desires relationship with his created persons. Love. 
If you boil the nature, the essence of God down, we would say God is love. He desires a relationship of perfect love, which means that the created ones, you and I, were created with the ability to choose God. If we were not created with the ability to choose God, would there really be a relationship? If you were just forced, you were created, you had no choice, you just have to love me, you have to love me, is that really love? I used to tell students the story, I used to reference um, Beauty and the Beast right at this point in the theological reflection. Turns out there's some decent theology in Beauty and the Beast. You might want to go back and watch it again. Beauty and the Beast. Uh, the Beast has a curse, and the Beast uh, has to find love, right? On a, uh, b- uh, before time runs out, before all the petals fall off the rose. This is pretty good leading up to Valentine's Day, isn't it? It's good timing. And Bell comes uh, into his life. I'm going to fast forward through all of this, but essentially, uh, Bell becomes the beast captive. And there's this relationship that develops, you know. And I don't remember the names of the teacup and the kettle and the broom and all those people, but they're all cheering for this relationship, right? Because they have been transformed into these objects. Their spell to become human again can only be broken if the beast finds love. And there's this spark of a relationship that happens, this sweet friendship that happens between the beast who thinks he's terrible and Belle who is beautiful. Belle means beauty. But all the while, the petals of the rose are falling off and they're running out of time and just as there's just maybe one or two petals left on the rose she says in this conversation with the beast oh but my father he's sick would you like to see your father he looks she looks in the mirror remember this and she sees her father and if i could only go to my father see my father care for my father and the beast chooses to release her, to go to her father. And, and there's this, I, went, trust, I googled this and watched the video this weekend. Not the whole movie, just this scene. I don't want you to, just the scene. Where he's sitting there with Belle, the beast is, and the rose is under the glass container and the petals are falling off and she is there and He's looking at the rose, and he knows what that means if the spell is to be broken. And he says to her, you're free. Go. And she says, really? And yes. And she leaves, and she goes. And there's this moment of despair for the beast because he knows that his best chance to know love and break the spell is now gone. And the broomstick and the tea kettle, I wish I had watched enough to remember their names now, but I didn't. They're in despair because the curse will not be broken. But what happens? What happens? You guys know the story? After she's released and she goes to her father, okay, 
This is going to be a really long sermon if you don't like engage. What happens? She comes back. And there's this beautiful moment where she chooses the beast. And just before the last moment, uh, the last moment where the rose petal could fall, the spell is broken because there's love. Why is there love? There couldn't be love until she released her to choose. I'm telling you, we were created for love with the God of all creation who created us, who gives us choice to choose to love, which means that there's also the choice to choose not to. What if another reading of this encounter with the serpent is that the choice to not choose God is not something that's acting upon us from around us, but within us, inherent in the choice? You follow that? It feels, I feel like I've slipped a little bit into... Um, college professor mode here, and maybe it's not landing well. (laughs) I'm saying that the evil is around us and it acts upon us, and the evil is also within us because of our human nature, and that God gives us the choice to choose to live and to love. It's what gets played out in the next story with Cain and his brother Abel, created to be in relationship with each other so that they might flourish in life before God and in relationship to each other. But Cain sees his brother as threat, that that Abel might win more of God's favor than his, that Abel might get more life than Cain might get. And so Abel takes the life away from Cain. He chooses to succumb to the evil within. If the choice that sits before Cain is like this. My friend Michael puts it this way. My friend Michael preaches in Sweetwater. He says, I'm going to read this to you. Pay close attention. The words are not on the screen. Evil is to diminish, discourage, or destroy without due, due reverence. And to work against evil is to draw people to their giftedness to help them be all that God has in mind for them, to make room for their wholeheartedness and to draw them back to life. Evil is to diminish, discourage, destroy. Cain killed Abel. We have the choice to choose to give life or to take life. In all its forms, evil is not only that which lurks around us, it's that which manifest itself even within us. We have the choice to work against the evil, to make room for the wholeheartedness of others to choose, to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We live the choice for love. To hold back the evil, the impulse to diminish and destroy, to hold back the chaos of no life. And the good news of the prayer we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is that we are not left to ourselves. 
before the evil that is around us or the evil that is within us. We are not left to ourselves. When Paul in Romans 8 talks about the whole creation groaning, he says to us that that deep dis-ease, that deep groaning, calls you to remember the hope that's been placed within you. It's sort of a sign to prompt you. Oh yeah, that's there. I feel it. I know it. I see it around me and I feel it sort of making its way within me. But no, we are those who have this hope that's placed within us. We believe that God is up to something in the mending of all things and of all people, that God is setting things right and he's making things whole. And we do not lose that vision. Churches, Christians can get distracted by all kinds of things that they think are good things and lose the overall sense that God is moving all things towards completeness and wholeness that evil has not won, that God is redeeming and delivering all things. We, we are not left to ourselves in the midst of the evil because we have this hope that's placed within us and because we've been given this gift of the Spirit. Paul says we do not know what we ought to pray in the face of that deep groaning, but the Spirit intercedes with sighs and groans that are beyond words. It's as if Paul is saying, yes, feel that groaning, that longing, that sense that something's not right. Because in that moment where you feel that, because you have this hope, the Spirit of God is entering into that groaning and interceding for you, but not just for you individually, for all things and for all people. The Spirit intercedes with us. It, it, he uses this language. The Spirit searches our hearts and knows our hearts and intercedes in ways that are beyond even what we are conscious of. Look, we pray, God, in this present age where the waters of the chaos flood, Red Sea. The waters of the chaos seem to churn and press in around us. Where there is so much that is broken and fractured, we pray, deliver us from evil and lead us not into temptation. This morning, I, I just have the sense that that this all feels pretty heavy. <laughs> and it may be that we need to take a moment, I think in, in the singing of this next hymn, to own the deep groaning of our own time. Um, I mean, how do you endure the evil, which is the diminishing of life, that is disease? And there's not a, a, a trip around uh, the sun on this planet where we are not faced with the reality that these bodies are not perfect. They are broken and often diseased. That that's evil. God does not intend that. 
And, and this, we call it a pandemic, and it feels like we're, we're in an era in which um, perhaps that's not a blip on the radar. But our, our, our fear, if I could state it out loud, is that this will actually be something that persists in one form or another. And I don't know, I, I'm not, this, is not, this is not a political statement at all. And you may have different views on all of this, but, but even a sense that um, the planet itself is in travail. And regardless of whether you believe that or not, um, certainly there's the moment to consider that, hey, maybe this thing isn't eternal. There's only one thing that's eternal. And the planet itself is in truth. I'm just telling you, can we sit for a moment and recognize that our hope is in the God who by Jesus is redeeming all these things. And, and um, I know I can look across this room and I don't know, uh, I'm getting to know your faces pretty well and I'm learning some of your names, but I don't know all of your stories, but, but I've been around enough to realize that um, in this room, there's some people who carry some pretty deep wounds, groaning, because you know the pain of fractured relationships. And you may be experiencing that right now. Um, somebody wounded you. Or maybe you wounded someone else. That's a deep groaning. And, and you know what? This isn't the place church, the gathering of the faithful is not the place where we ignore all of that. Where we think that it has no place here or it's bad. It's the place where we acknowledge it and we own it because we have this hope that though the evil presses in around us and on us, it has not overcome and in the end, God is redeeming and restoring all things. So, we're going to sing this song. And we're going to search our hearts, even as the Spirit of God searches our hearts. And I want you to know that as we do that, as we sing and we search our hearts, that the Spirit is searching our hearts and with sighs and groans that we cannot express ourselves is interceding for us. Don't ask me to explain how that happens or what it is. But let's agree, believe together, that it's true. That even in these moments, God can be mending and healing and making whole again. Deliver us from evil. Lead us not into this temptation to believe that the evil around us and the evil within us is the despair that overcomes us. And so we can acknowledge that we can come around each other and hold each other in that reality. We can minister to each other in, in moments of silence where nothing need be said and in moments where we speak God's blessing over each other. We can pray for one another. We can step into waters that are no longer the waters of chaos but are the waters of redemption and know the salvation of God believing that that eternal trajectory is too for us here and now, that opportunity is, for, is, 
is for us in this moment. And out of that moment, God is going to join us around a table. And I know there's no table here. And the bread and the cup we share are in these little forms that you hold. But we're going to take them as the community of those who know that God has entered into the deep groaning of the evil that persists in this world in the death of Jesus and holds out to us life in the resurrection of Jesus. We are the community of the redeemed at that table. So let us turn our full hearts and full life, uh, attention um, in this moment to God's loving, redemptive power as we remember the, the prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's stand together. Uh, Raymond, come and lead us as we sing.